This week marks the 20th year anniversary of the September 11 terrorist attacks in the United States. Maybe you dimly recall these terrible events, but both of us remember them quite well. We also record the stories and other images we used while trying to process how people could do this. We will explore not just September 11 and similar events today, but the greater question of how we as Christians use fantastic fiction to process real wars and rumors of wars. Welcome again to Fantastical Truth, the podcast from lorehaven.com. In this podcast, we find and explore the best Christian-made fantasy, science fiction, and beyond. We enjoy applying the meanings of these stories to the real world that our creator and our author, Jesus Christ, calls us to serve. I'm E. Stephen Burnett, and I publish lorehaven.com. I'm also the co-author of a nonfiction book about fiction called The Pop Culture Parent. And I'm Zachary Russell, and this is episode 79, How Do We Use Fantastic Fiction to Process Wars and Rumors of Wars? This is not just about the September 11 terrorist attacks. However, Zach and everyone, as we record this, it is actually September 11, 2021, 20 years after that fateful and infamous morning, especially for resident citizens of the United States, September 11, 2001. We were watching the news, as was most of the world, when terrorists flew hijacked airplanes into both towers of the World Trade Center, which have not been standing now for 20 years, and then also flew a third plane into the Pentagon, and then had a fourth plane on the way to crash into something, the Capitol building, the White House, who knows, and then that plane was brought down near Shanksville, Pennsylvania, uh, by a revolt of passengers, a bit of a hero story there, but also a tragedy, so we're going to see plenty of heroism and tragedy in this episode. Uh, it's a bit of more sober one this time, so a quick grab from the concession stand there, a little muffin to unwrap. It's going to be a more serious one. Yeah, so we we have the internet now, so there are tons of conspiracy theories and, and whatnot about 9-11, and there's also some really horrible, horrible takes about 9-11, like I just read one yesterday, and let's uh, deconstruct what 9-11 means to everyone and uh, have this postmodern filter on it, which you've listened to our last one, you know, I'm not a fan of. <laughs> That's too much imagination and not enough facts. This was a real event. Yeah. These are real people. This is not an academic exercise. Uh, this right. is not just a bunch of symbols that happened to inhabit the form of reality. We are not Gnostics here. 2,977, I think, was the final death toll of people who died. That includes everyone on board the planes, everyone on the ground, everyone in the towers. This is real stuff. And so we're going to look at the real stuff the tragedy of September 11th and other wars and rumors of wars. And we're going to ask ourselves and ask you, because we'd love to hear from you, our listeners as well. What kind of stories do you use? Uh, what kinds of fictional worlds do you explore in order to try to process reality, in order to try to cope uh, with a great tragedy like this? On the way, we'll share some of our memories of this event. And uh, we'll also talk a little bit uh, about uh, how this event affected Christian publishing in particular, Zach and I were talking earlier about, uh, I think it was, a, I'd say it's at least a decade of Christian books, novels, uh, science fiction, end times thrillers and such that was affected by September 11th specifically. Uh, lots of nonfiction, of course, came out, but then uh, a lot of end time series were going on at the same time and they kind of had to retcon September 11th and do some talking about terrorism and things, I think largely to beneficial effect, uh, at least as far as my experience can confirm. You know, besides stories, I, I 
visited Ground Zero twice since 9-11. So first in 2005 and again in 2017. So after they had built the museum and um, I can't remember if the Freedom Tower was finished at that point. That was about four years ago. It's quite something to actually see it in person. Very different than just seeing it on the news or, or reading stories about it or watching movies that kind of reflect the whole experience for us. But um, actually seeing how gigantic the footprint of these towers was is really something. You know, now it's these, um, I think they call it infinity pools or something. It's like a, a waterfall that goes down all the way down to the middle and it's the the same size as the building was and you just you just look and you're like my goodness it's overwhelming i encourage everyone to go do that at some point in their life i've actually never been to new york city before or after the attacks Uh, i have definitely been to washington dc however i don't remember whether or not i saw the pentagon but i actually went to dc for the first time before 2001 and then again i was actually at uh, president bush's uh, second inauguration in 2005 uh, in which he had plenty to say about uh, his views of freedom and american intervention around the world and such like one of these days i should have to get myself to new york city uh, my wife however uh, was part of a um, a dance uh, class uh, that went to uh, shanksville pennsylvania i forget the uh, actual year in which she did that it may have been 2007 i'll have to ask her later Uh, But uh, her dance teacher as well was a flight attendant who literally knew people who were lost, as I recall, uh, in that attack. Of course, it's an entire airline crew as well, several of them uh, who were lost as well as their passengers and uh, everyone in those towers. I guess that leads me rather quickly to the concession stand. Uh, We'll we'll try to keep our our sojourn here short. First concession that we're not debating war or particular wars at this time. Uh, Regular listeners know that we try to address uh, politics mainly when those are issues of religious or moral belief uh, requiring imagination and a biblical worldview. We try to avoid public policy. So I've I've already referenced being at uh, President Bush's inauguration. Uh, We won't talk about uh, how America responded to uh, that terrorist attack as much other than saying terrorists are bad. Uh, That's about as far as we're going to go. Uh, We will, however, talk about the evil uh, that was part of that attack. It's not just a tragedy. It certainly is a tragedy, but a hurricane is a tragedy. An earthquake is a tragedy. Uh, Those things would have happened apart from any evil human will. The September 11 terrorist attacks only happened because evil humans made choices and believed in evil things. This is not a place, by the way, for conspiracy theories either. As Zachy mentioned those earlier. We're going to avoid those and actively discourage people from avoiding those. Uh, Obviously, there are some people who will falsely accuse uh, marginal beliefs of being conspiracies. Uh, But in this case, uh, the evidence and everything that we see, everything that we hear, bipartisan, by the way, for those in America, is just overwhelming evidence of who committed the September 11 terrorist attacks and why they did it. Uh, We got to say also uh, that Christians in Police or military service uh, face many ethical challenges uh, when these things happen. Uh, I cannot imagine the trauma that these folks go through, uh, whether they were in military service or knew someone who died. I mean, you never know who's going to listen to this podcast. I just want to say, you know, obviously, thank you for your service to anybody who is serving or adjunct to someone who is serving. Uh, maybe you knew somebody. Um, I personally, Zach, did not know anybody that I can remember who was directly affected by the attacks, but the footprint 
of them was so great that it seems that most people I knew, at least those people knew somebody who was affected or they knew somebody who knew somebody who was affected. We were at least four degrees of separation away from someone who was literally involved in the attacks uh, or even was a victim of the attacks. And at last concession here too, this requires a little imagination to think about September 11, 2001, especially uh, if you were born after uh, that year. Uh, it has now been 20 years afterwards. Almost certainly some of our listeners uh, do not remember that event. We do. So just cast your imagination back and remember a world that's very different from today. And I'd say at least 50% minimum of those differences is due to the fact that there were no smartphones. Yes, we had internet. Most of it was dial-up. I don't remember how much high-speed internet was uh, still being experimented on. Uh, I remember my college uh, where I was attending uh, got it uh, either that year or soon afterwards. Uh, most of our internet was dial-up, certainly no smartphones at all. Uh, any video cameras were independent devices. You could not upload to the cloud at all. Any of the video that was taken of the, uh, of the Twin Towers being hit, for example, was either from uh, news helicopters or cameras nearby. You had to wait days, maybe weeks, for any video to surface from people who happened to be on the ground uh, seeing it in person. Uh, there was one video I was watching just this morning, actually, where I think it was a firefighting crew. They were inspecting a gas line. And I think that is the only video I've seen of the first plane hitting. They just happened to point the camera right up there as the plane flew overhead and like a second before it hit uh, that first tower. So very different world technologically, very different uh, in terms of worldview and politically. Uh, lots has changed between now and then. So it takes a great act of imagination uh, to wrap our heads and hearts around those facts. Well, in a moment, we will recall September 11, the facts and our initial responses to it. First, however, uh, we must introduce again, uh, returning sponsor, AJ Chamberlain, the author of Kane's Redemption is our first sponsor for this episode. Kane's Redemption is a new Christian thriller. It's the sequel to Urban Angel, and it released on September the 3rd. Here is the plot description. Winning the battle is not the same as winning the war. Alex Masters is pursuing her dreams, and Daisy has overcome her demons, but the enemy does not rest, and he is desperate to atone for his mistakes. Out of that desperation, a new plan emerges that is fashioned to exploit the weaknesses of his opponents. But even as the enemy's plans unfold, so does the potential for love. This love may fulfill its destiny, but first, it must survive, and for that to happen, there must be redemption. One reviewer of a book one of this series, Urban Angel, said, I was so immersed in this book, I felt I was there walking every step with the characters. It made me think about my Christian faith and the way in which God is always nearby. I cannot recommend this book highly enough and eagerly await book two in this series. That uh, book released now, so this reader need not keep waiting. We will have the link for you in the show notes for Kane's Redemption, which is available in both paperback and ebook. So, Stephen, I, I remember really clearly. That whole day, I was in college at the time. I woke up that morning. My, I had three roommates. We live in this house. Um, they had already all left for class. I guess I had a late class that day. And uh, so I woke up kind of late, came out of the living room, and the TV was on. And my roommates never just left the TV on. And then, you know, it was just this long shot of the towers. I think it was before they fell, or at least before both of them fell. I'm trying to remember the timing here. Well, well, let me let me help you out with that. Actually, I have some stats right here. Yeah, uh, the first plane with ninety-two people aboard. Not sure whether that includes the hijackers. 
uh, hit the World Trade Center North Tower at 8.46 a.m. September 11th. And I think it was a okay. couple minutes later, uh, at least Eastern I was time. watching the CNN. Yeah, all, all times Eastern okay. time. All these attacks, I think, took place in the Eastern time zone. So 8.46 a.m., North Tower was hit. Uh, the second plane had 65 people and it hit the South Tower at 9.03 a.m. News cameras were already covering the first tower, of course, burning at uh, you know, a little bit more at the top side of that tower. And then, which this is the weird thing, by the way, uh, the second plane hits while the news cameras are covering it, but you see the plane, at least from the CNN vantage, fly onto the screen. You then see the the footage is interrupted by uh, some kind of technical glitch or something, and they've still been talking to an analyst or witness or something of the first plane strike, and they seem not to have realized what happened. They cut back to the feed, and then they're saying something about how there seems to have been another uh, explosion, and then they realize, oh, that the second tower is burning. Like, when did that happen? I mean, I'm paraphrasing, but you see the 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 repeat of the live feed. You see that again, that second plane fly in there, and they just they don't notice. They must have been looking away, but viewers seem to have known that at least of the CNN feed uh, before the anchors did. And you can only imagine what it takes uh, for TV journalists who in this respect, we're trying to do their jobs and stay calm and be objective and all of that. Uh, but you can see the performance start to break a little bit. So, so you say you started watching after both towers were hit, but before they collapsed. Yeah. Well, so I'm looking it up here. The, the North tower hit, collapsed at 10 28 AM. Yes. So I was in central time. So it's nine 28. Mm-hmm. And then the second tower South Tower. Oh, the South Tower collapsed first, even though it was hit second. Yeah, that, I literally was reviewing that this yeah. morning, and I, I feel like I was today years old when I realized, wait a minute, the towers did not fall in the order they were hit. Uh, the South Tower was hit, must right. have been more directly, and I, I think the plane was flying a little bit lower. Uh, the North Tower, it kind of, I mean, it didn't sideswipe the top of it, but it seems to have been only a, a few dozen stories or so from the, the very top of the tower. Yeah, so that was uh, so about uh, 9 a.m. and 9.30 a.m. Central Time. I may have I may have gotten up after both of those had collapsed, yeah. but uh, you know I I didn't have anywhere to go for the you know I, I keep wondering how did my roommates even hear about this because like, like you said we we didn't have smartphones you know it's not like it's big enough you, you wake up and check Facebook. each other though well, yeah well I think I, that was it and let, let's remind uh, younger listeners especially uh, it wasn't that we did not have cell phones I had a cell phone I did too uh, but it's yeah. such compared with the devices of today which are literally pocket computers. Uh, this was a primitive device. <laughs> we had flip phones. Yes, yeah. it literally. Flip was, phones, yeah, you could you could flip phones. the thing. You know, <laughs> nobody was texting. By the way, uh, not with these. Right, primitive, it was strictly for calling. There may have been a mm-hmm. very basic game or so on there, but you you called people, and that was the only thing it was for. And I, as I recall, I was actually at uh, at college that day. It was a Tuesday, and I was also in the Eastern time zone, so all the times uh, sync up. I was listening to talk radio on the way in, very basic stuff. I think that may have been at about 8.30 a.m. I went to class at 9 a.m., came out of class. It was uh, about an hour, 10-minute class at about uh, 10, 10 a.m. And both towers by then had already been hit. No one in the class knew. Remember, no smartphones. No one's browsing the internet during this class. Uh, Maybe if someone had a laptop or something, but in that day, this was 2001, that would have seemed a little strange. I think the the uh, the etiquette yeah. there in college was yeah you weren't you weren't going to be typing on your computer all the time in class like you were in class we weren't even checking the news yeah online. no if you're in, in class you're in there you are immersed in that one room in that one environment with those people uh, again 
very different world, a very different country mm -hmm. almost of 20 years ago. So I come out 10, 10, 10, 12 a.m. or something, and I just see a bunch of people congregating in one of the computer rooms because you have to have a separate room for to computers, mm -hmm. you know, for students who don't have one. And everyone's just watching the screen. And I see, I guess it would have been then the North Tower uh, burning uh, with this gushing clouds of ash and, uh, and horror uh, bursting from uh, the top of the tower. And I remember just asking someone, what, what, what is this? What's all this then? And someone says, uh, we're under attack. I, I mean, that's a paraphrase, but I'm pretty sure that's faithful. Right. And I call my mom to see what's going on. She would have known I was in class. And I uh, think I remember just getting the rundown between talking with her and talking with other students. But I glance away from the screen. And then by the time I look back, uh, the North Tower is gone. And there's only this, you know, pillar of, of cloud left behind. It's, it's uh, truly apocalyptic. And uh, this is a personal background there for me as well. Like I'm at that point fairly politically astute. I was a news junkie. Uh, I kept up with all of the uh, all the election mess in the year 2000. And if you think the elections, by the way, are bad now in the United States, uh, 2000 was pretty horrible. Uh, that was that was the first, I think, really horrible election. And I, I wasn't able to vote then, but I, I wish I could have. And I'm I'm keeping up with world events. You know, I knew things were getting a little bit bad there in uh, the summer of 2001. And uh, and yet this this just came out of nowhere. Um, it was it was stunning. Um, a few other a uh, few other facts there i have here uh, the total uh, deaths in the world trade center uh, attack specifically uh, was 2823 that includes uh, everyone on board those uh, two planes the third plane had 64 people in it and it hit the pentagon at 9:38 a.m. so that's just i mean all this within a single hour three planes hit uh, these yeah. uh, these landmarks uh, that killed 125 people in the Pentagon, but that people uh, that plane had 64 people on board. And then the fourth plane, uh, in uh, famously Flight 93, had 44 people ab aboard, and it crashed in rural Pennsylvania at 10:10 a.m. So, just within two hours, all of this went down. Uh, every airport closed. Every flight was grounded in the United for States like a week. for a week. Yeah. People yeah. are stranded at airports, trying to get home. And remember again, no smartphones. You can't text. You can't book a car over your phone. Uh, you have to show up at the payphone to call anybody because sometimes the cell phones weren't working as well because everyone's using the cell phones in a primitive network. To, to illustrate that, I just remembered my college pastor was out of town and I think he was in New York or New Jersey. He was somewhere on the East Coast. And so he got stranded there for a couple of days and um, he recounted the story of like his flight got canceled and he's like, what's happening? And then, you know, I guess they had the TVs in the airport. Although again, this was 20 years ago. So I don't remember how many TVs were there. Some stranger walked up to him and, and handed him a phone and said, uh, Hey, you need to call your wife. <laughs> and, and then explained everything that was going on. And yeah, he didn't have his own phone. I mean, can you imagine that? I guess it took him five, six days or something to get home after that. Cause that was all the way from the East coast back down to Texas. That's insane. 2,977 people uh, died as a result of all of those attacks, all of those plane crashes. I don't even have the stats for how many people were injured uh, because when those towers fell, everybody uh, compares it now. They say, oh, oh it was like a movie. Uh, it yeah. wasn't like a movie for those there. It was like a war zone. 
uh, the towers fall. Uh, it's like a volcanic level ash cloud fills the city of New York City. I was reading the account of one survivor earlier this morning who'd made it out of one of the towers. They managed to get down the stairs while the firefighters, of course, are going the opposite direction to their doom. These people get out. Uh, the tower falls. They're trapped in a basement level mall type place. And I think they escaped through a Borders bookstore. And then he's high on adrenaline trying to get out, uh, trying to reconnect with family and assure his own family that he was alive because they would have known that he was in that tower. And then the the part that sticks out to me the most is that I think he said he made it to uh, friends on a university campus and then the adrenaline just ran out and suddenly his eyes are burning. Uh, he said he had to go to a doctor. They put in eye drops. And then once he went to a specialist, I believe he said they removed 147 shards, tiny little splinters uh, of glass uh, from there, uh, fiberglass. The trauma, the injury level, this is dark stuff. Uh, it, it, I, I had never felt until that point the reality of Romans 8, that our world groans, groans under the pain and anguish of sin and suffering. And we haven't even talked yet about who did it and why. Uh, it's enough at this point just to talk about it as if it were a natural disaster. But of course, evil people committed it and made it happen. Well, and it's worth also remembering all of the first responders that have died from related illnesses from the cleanup. I mean, because like you said, they were breathing in toxic air. And, you know, the, even just the people that escaped, uh, they escaped with a lot of scars on their body and in their lungs. This is from Scientific American. As of today, at least 4,627 responders and survivors have died. Wow. So wow. these are people that made it out or people that went back to help, you know, look, look, you know, they thought people are trapped. Let's try to rescue them. I mean, this is incredible. There's been 410,000 first responders, cleanup crew workers, uh, other survivors, all exposed to that contaminated air. This article says 4,000, like more people have died that survived 9-11 right. than actually died. I mean, that's just incredible to think. And, uh, you know, it, and it's affected many, many more people that are, that are still uh, chronically ill since then. So it, it's had very much a ripple effect on our society. And this is just looking at like the physical effects. There's obviously many, many more effects that it's had on our society. Yeah. Zach, what do you remember about these spiritual effects? Because I, I think back then I'll, I'll give away my age here. What was I? First year of college, 18. Yeah. So I, I would like to think old enough to know that it probably wouldn't last. Like, let's, let's just, I'll just come right out and say it back then. You know, if you're a raised Christian and uh, in a, in a Christian household and reading a whole heck of a lot of left behind series books, uh, you are, or at least I was uh, cultivating my imagination to expect that we are living into end times, like the actual really, really, really end end times. Like, just rapture ahead. Uh, and so I'm kind of expecting this, but then also I would like to think old enough to realize that this doesn't mean the rapture or the antichrist are necessarily just around the corner. Uh, it's now been 20 years later. And as far as we know, nothing like that has happened, but suddenly it felt like all of that had come to life. But at the same time, I'm thinking, well, if there's a, a revival type thing, is there kind of seemed to be afterwards because everyone's looking for answers. The churches are packed that Sunday afterwards. 
Uh, President Bush is bringing in a lot of, I would say, Christian-adjacent rhetoric, uh, particularly when he's talking about good and evil and uh, Mm -hmm. just presuming uh, moral absolutism there. Folks can disagree with what he chose to do with it, but I appreciated him drawing the moral boundaries very thick. Uh, there was no equivocation in his rhetoric or in the in, in a lot of people's rhetoric. It was bipartisan condemnation of these attacks, obviously. But I, I was trying to ask you, like, what do you remember about any of the spiritual effects uh, of September 11 in addition to uh, all of the physical and political repercussions? Right. So I was, a, like I said, I was a senior in college, Texas A&M. And the, the very first thing that happened that day, well, first of all, let me just recount a couple things that happened related to being a student is I went to my first class and the teacher canceled it and said, everyone just, just go home. I went to my next class, which was uh, my least favorite class in all of university, which was probability and statistics. And the professor did not even acknowledge nine 11, much less slow down at all through class. Strange, but it was, it was really, everyone was looking around like maybe he doesn't know what happened. And come to find out later that he was well aware of what happened and he had decided that the terrorists are trying to disrupt our way of life I and see. I'm not going to, I'm not going to let them. So it wasn't detachment or caustic no. response. It was, uh, it was an Defiance. act of resistance. Yeah. Well, good for him then. I, right. I, and I, I appreciate I was like, that a lot. Yeah. Like at first it really made me angry. I'm like, dude, at least say something <laughs> and maybe you should have said something. Well, he could, he could have showed yeah. his work then uh, instead right. of having you find out later. It's like, Hey, right. We're all aware of the elephant in the room. Uh, we mustn't let the terrorists win. Like it, it's yeah. kind of a catchphrase now, uh, almost. A it meme, is, but it's yeah. true. It's true. Th- there is, there is definitely that, you let the terrorists win. Yeah. Yeah. So then, um, there was this weekly prayer service called breakaway. that's still happening today. It's like a worship and a Bible teaching and prayer time, uh, for all Christian students on campus. It's in the basketball arena and breakaway decided to have a, prayer service that night. And so, I mean, there were like thousands, thousands of students that came there for that. It was really something. I talked to a few of my Christian friends that day to ask what's their perspective on it. And yeah, I definitely got that perspective. You talked about Stephen, like maybe this is the end times. And one of my friends quoted from uh, Revelation 18 and he's like, uh, I, I think there were already some Christian pundits quoting from this, talking about when they see the smoke of her burning, they will exclaim, was there ever a city like this great city? In one hour, she has been brought to ruin. So when New York City is Babylon, or, or was it just a symbolic comparison? Because America is pretty terrible, but it's not Babylon, I don't think. Right. And so I, I don't think this was what my friend said he believed. It's just that he had turned on the television and, and heard someone preaching about this and okay. said, well, you know, here we go. Fulfilled prophecy that, you know, in one hour she's been brought to ruin and that the smoke of her burning is being seen all around the world. And when else would that be possible except in, you know, with mass media? You know, I, I thought that was a bit of a stretch because of everything else that goes on in Revelation 18. But um, the, the passage that this friend and I talked about was where, well, some people asked Jesus, what do you think about uh, these people that pilot sacrifice and, and are killed and mix their blood in with sacrifice. That's right. And, and Jesus responded. And then, well, what about the tower that, that fell on, you know, 18 people? Were they any worse sinners than you? But, you know, you should repent. Uh, in, unless you repent, you too will perish. 
as we talked about this whole thing, you know, we thought, you know, the best spiritual response is, is obviously to pray for everyone that's involved and, and traumatized by this, but it's also to repent of your own sin. Like it sounds weird to say that, but I, I think that so often in this world, we are just lulled into spiritual complacency and these events that just arrest our attention. You know, the first thing we need to do is get right with the Lord and make sure we are on track with him. So that was, that's what we did that night. We just had a big old prayer service on campus. Uh, for us uh, at A&M, this was kind of an odd echo of something that happened in 1999, where we had uh, a 95-foot bonfire stack uh, collapse and uh, kill 12 people, 12 students. So this was an annual tradition that we built this giant bonfire when we play the University of Texas in football around Thanksgiving. And um, something happened with it that year. It's a long story. Uh, 12 students were killed by it and it led to quite a few things, but again, it w- there was a lot of prayer services that happened. There was a lot of, I, I don't know, there, there was a real revival. I, I, you would have to say that in how people responded to the Lord and to each other, um, the Lord used it for good, even though it was a really terrible thing. I mean, it's, and again, that was it. That was a, another thing where there was no smartphones people aren't really online it was just everyone reach, calling word everyone. of yeah. mouth yeah knocking on each other's doors like hey let's put on your boots let's go down there and see what we can do to help yeah. that was my sophomore year and then um 9-11 was my senior year you know you asked about like the spiritual response it, the the first thing i started doing was praying <laughs> like i i just like even there in the living room when they found the tv on i'm like okay god what what do i need to do about this. And so I, I started praying a lot about, do I need to go into the military? Do I need to go into the CIA or something? like the CIA was recruiting people from my major. So I was, I was thinking about that or do I need to be a missionary to this part of the world? Uh, take the gospel to these people that seem to hate us. And, and that was eventually where I was, I was led long story short, but I think you can't go wrong responding to a, a terrible event through lots and lots of prayer by yourself and, and with others. And that's, that's what I saw a lot happen there in college. Amen to that. Well, we'll talk in a moment about how else Zach and I responded to September 11th and how we saw uh, that response reflected in our, in our culture. Uh, we'll move then uh, to the questions about how Christian fiction and fantastical fiction uh, responded in general. First, however, we have our second sponsor of today's episode. It's actually a new sponsor uh, from Revel Books, uh, Sean Smucker. Uh, We've actually had him on the podcast uh, last summer, 2020. And uh, his book, The Weight of Memory, uh, released this year from Revel Books. Lorehaven actually reviewed that book uh, not too long ago as we're recording this. And I'll read our review in full for this sponsor slot. We said, what would you give for a chance to change the past or prevent it from recurring? Paul Elias is burdened by regret and the tumor that may take his life at any time. So he embarks upon a desperate quest to find a new guardian for his granddaughter Pearl in the small hometown he fled 40 years ago. But this is a novel by Sean Smucker, and in the weight of memory, dark secrets lurk beneath even the most placid of surfaces. Is the ghostly woman who makes Pearl run strange errands at night merely a phantom of Pearl's imagination or something more? The story unfolds like a sleeper waking from a dream, slowly, tentatively clinging to the hope or fear of world-ending reality. Smucker imbues his tale with characteristic melancholy, a haunted awe of lost and desolate places, but also with deep compassion for its flawed and thoughtful characters. 
In the end, however, the dream world never fully recedes, and the weight of memory may prove satisfying mainly to readers who love ambiguity. And our reviewer felt that this book is best for adults who wish to sink down into an imaginative and immersive reverie. Those terms seem to describe a lot of this episode, by the way. I've not personally read The Weight of Memory, but that is a highly praiseworthy review. We will link to it in our show notes for episode 79 and also in our podcast sponsors page, along with uh, all of the sponsors for this episode. So let's talk about some of the nonfiction we got into after September 11th occurred. It is worth it to engage with these events and September 11th in particular. I just remember it gave me a lot more incentive to track uh, world events and politics and uh, to keep up with the news, to try to figure out my opinions about all of this, of course. Uh, But my first response, I think, was an appropriate one, just to understand the world, understand the reality, to get past the opinions and conspiracy theories and focus on the truth. Uh, That's appropriate for Christians to do, as for humans to do, to try to seek order. We want explanations for these things as much as we can Uh, before we talk about imagination and even the fantastic stories we use to process these events. You've got to start with the reality. And I just remember reading a lot more, uh, including uh, some books by uh, Bob Woodward, the reporter who was uh, famously known for helping to break the Watergate scandal in the 70s during the Nixon administration. Uh, he was still at the time very active uh, in working in uh, Washington, D.C., as I recall, with the Washington Post. And he put out several books. I thought they were really good. Uh, maybe he comes from the more classic liberal slash left uh, perspective. But in that case, he just focused on the facts. And his first book I actually have here. What is it here? Yeah, no, the first book was uh, just called Bush at War. I think that released as soon as uh, 2002. Just a recounting of September 11th and how the Bush administration responded to that. But I also engaged not just with the uh, the political reality or the the national reality, uh, but with the the nonfiction religious perspective. I actually remember at the time, uh, starting in 2000, I was actually attempting a, a science fiction novel. Uh, Zach, you've read the most updated version of that. You know that it uh, touches on uh, religious conflicts in a 21st or 22nd century environment, rather. Uh, so it's it's science fiction. And at the time, I was reading a lot about Islam. Uh, Islam was not even at the news. Uh, this, uh, this third major world religion uh, based on the worship of a single god, Judaism, and then Christianity, and then uh, Islam laid on the scene a few centuries uh, after Jesus uh, left the earth for now. Uh, Islam was fascinating to me. I don't even remember why I got into it uh, before the terrorists uh, made it more widely discussed. But I just I found it really interesting. Um, obviously, I, I still believe it's a false religion. I uh, would love my Muslim neighbors if I had any, but uh, don't agree with it at all. And of course, some Christian books, especially those that came out after September 11th, I, I found some pretty bad ones. Uh, there was actually a huckster at the time. I, I think that's that's an appropriate term named Ergen Kainer, uh, who claimed to be an, an ex-terrorist and uh, made uh, made a lot of uh, progress on the speaker slash Christian book publishing circuit. Uh, and then he was exposed. And in fact, uh, it was actually a, an apologist named James White uh, working with some of his friends uh, in among uh, Islam scholarship who exposed this guy. He was uh, making a lot of fraudulent claims. I remember reading one or two of those books. I don't remember being too affected by them. I put them away. I found some good books. As a as an amateur scholar, uh, it's all just very fascinating to understand people, to understand people from another culture and why they think this way. 
and why some of them could be motivated to become terrorists or, or join uh, an abusive uh, government such as the Taliban in Afghanistan. And, and Zach, we haven't even talked about Afghanistan uh, 20 years later. Uh, I don't like the writing for this season. I don't like what they did with the Afghanistan subplot. Uh, they lost the plot entirely. Uh, we've actually had a couple of good articles, by the way, at Lorehaven, uh, one by Travis Perry about his experiences in Afghanistan. I think it was in the, the late 2000s. Uh, and then uh, I wrote, obviously, I haven't been to Afghanistan or served in the military. So I just wrote about what happens when Iron Man and Superman go to Afghanistan. Or you know, in the case of Superman, it was an Afghanistan-like country, a politically sensitive country in which Superman interfered. That's my article, uh, Travis's, is about uh, the reality of uh, Afghan culture and what was going on even uh, several years after America struck back in that country. That's the nonfiction. Uh, Zach, uh, what about you? Like any, anything you got into? You, you mentioned um, going to be a missionary, uh, motivated in part by September 11th, which I had not known. Well, the first thing I did was just try to understand what had happened. And so there was the 9-11 commission report. So this is just total nonfiction, very dry nonfiction. I actually had a copy of that for a while. I don't know where it is, but I looked for it on my shelf. It may be still packed up somewhere. Yeah, I, I read through that whole thing. You know, it, it chronicled all the different players in the attack and where they came from and who financed them. Now, again, there's a lot of geopolitical intrigue. It'd be easy to take up an hour talking about there. As soon as it happened, everyone wanted to know, well, who did this and why and, and how? And for the record, Al-Qaeda did it. Yeah. With with cover from the Taliban and lots of other complexity stuff. Yeah, Osama bin Laden. Well, I, I mean, like, who were the individuals that, Oh, the, the guys the who enrolled in flight yeah. school and learned to take off but right. never land. And, you know, yep. they were in it for a one-way trip to uh, an, an idea of paradise, that's for sure. So the thing that stood out to me the most from that uh, 9-11 Commission Report book was this phrase that we had a failure of imagination. Interesting. Even though there had been an attack on the Trade Center in 93, orchestrated by some of the same people. It was a truck bomb, was it not? Yeah, it was yeah. parked in the parking garage. And there was an attack earlier, the uh, 1999, uh, a, a boat ran up to a, a battleship uh, somewhere in, um, was it off the shore of Saudi Arabia or somewhere in that area, uh, the, the USS Cole. Yemen, I think. Yeah. That's right, Yemen. And it was the USS Cole attack. Mm -hmm. And um, specifically what they said about this failure of imagination was, first of all, that we, no one ever thought that terrorists could use planes that if they were going to hijack a plane it would be to demand something right would, they would, wanted money or they wanted they, they to wanted go to somewhere go somewhere right. yeah so they, they never had imagined uh, a plane being used as a missile essentially and i remember uh president bush actually used that phrase shortly after 9-11 he said al-qaeda has shot their missiles at us i thought that is very interesting yeah. you know that that had that kind of idea had not really been in the the public, or at least in the intelligence community or something. I can confirm that even at the popular cultural level. I was reviewing some of the videos this morning. And after the second plane hit, uh, I forget if it was the CNN anchor or someone else. Literally, the Tower 1 is on fire. Tower 2 gets hit live on video. And the anchor starts speculating, like, I, I can't, I can't, let's see, one, one would be forced to ask whether this is some, like, uh, failure in the navigation system. And I understand in the heat of the moment, and you are on the spot, you are the anchor speaking to millions of people watching on TV, and it has not even entered your imagination that this could be an attack. At that point, you're still thinking it must be some terrible technical glitch. After the second plane hits, 
that does illustrate a, a lapse of imagination, at least. In oh, the he moment. was saying that after the second, after plane. the second plane. Yes. Oh, wow. And then, oh my, oh my goodness. The second plane has just hit like, well, is this some sort of terrible navigation failure? And I'm thinking, well, that's, that's, that's science fiction. Like what, what navigation failure in a plane before widespread internet, like, oh, the bad guys hacked the plane or he was still trying to come up with some I mean, not naturalistic ex explanation, but just some terrible, egregious uh, technical failure. Mm. Uh, I did not enter his imagination to think that this could be an attack. But several other people, especially in government, immediately suspected that the first plane was an attack, especially because early rumors were that it was a small plane. Uh, and then once they figured out it was a large plane, and then after the second one hit, I think people with uh, more robust imaginations had figured out that this was obviously premeditated. Well, and I, I think it is just too horrible a thing to imagine someone doing something that incredibly evil and destructive. It, it's not something we normally think about. You know, we don't interact with people like that on a daily basis. And so I, I don't necessarily fault people for that, but it, it was interesting that they used that phrase. The other thing they talked about in the report was the whole aspect of suicide attacks. That to, to a Western mind, this does not make any sense to us that we, we try our best to get all our soldiers out of conflict and battle alive and in one piece and to send our soldiers in intentionally to die in an attack, uh, you know, kamikaze style. And, and, that, and that's the thing. It's like we've already been through a war where there were kamikaze attacks. Like why was this so hard to imagine another culture picking up the same idea, albeit for different, very different religious reasons? So a couple other things related to being a student at the time that I want to go over real quick. One is that I had a friend from the Middle East in my engineering classes. He disappeared for about a week or so. Oh. And finally I noticed and I was like, wait, where, where's this guy? And so I, I reached out to him and I said, Hey, where you been? And he's like, he's like, yeah, I've, I haven't wanted to be around campus because he's like, I, I just don't want to have to explain to anyone, you know, that I had nothing to do with this, but he was, uh, uh, he also became very disillusioned with the mosque that he was a part of. So he he was kind of between a rock and a hard place, and so uh, be, became a good friend of mine after that. The other thing that was interesting to note that I learned a couple years later is that the mastermind of the attacks, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, he was also an international student uh, in the U.S. at in North Carolina, I believe. For new listeners, you work or have worked with international students. Yeah. that is your beat. Yeah. Yeah, my my passion is uh, sharing the gospel with international students, and so this is one of those anecdotes that I think about a lot. Of like, man, how would our entire world be different if that one student had been reached with the gospel? You, you think of the transforming power of the gospel, how it turned someone like Saul of Tarsus into the Apostle Paul. The other big uh, nonfiction thing that I went through at the time, it's, it's a video from National Geographic called Inside 9-11. Now this, I, ha I have this on DVD. It comes from 2005. I can't seem to find it digitally. And I just looked it up on Amazon. It's selling for like $150. So to your listener, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm recommending something here that I don't know how you would get a hold of otherwise. But this was like a four-hour documentary I watched at the time that, again, just kind of went step-by-step -step through everything that happened, everyone that was involved, and, and just kind of how it, just the ripple effect of everything that happened. And that was, uh, is very well done, very respectfully done. It's something we'll watch with our kids at, at some point. 
I would recommend uh, everyone watch some kind of really well done documentary about this to to understand it better and uh, to not make assumptions about anyone or anything. I would, however, urge a little caution with the video watching. I was watching some videos this morning, and that can take you into a dark place. Yeah. Uh, some of the videos, by the way, even of people trapped in the towers who were trying to escape or find a quick death. We'll just leave it at that. Some of those videos have been memory hold, and I understand why. I was reading a whole article about one of the photos of someone who jumped or fell, whatever it was, from the building, uh, and a lot of the trauma that that uh, brought to uh, either the victim's family or, or someone who was maybe falsely identified as the victim's family. Fascinating article. Um, and, and yet, you know, I, I knew, okay, this article is enough. If I'm to read more, like I'm, I'm not able to handle that. I can't do anything about this. Uh, this makes me think more in terms of the imprecatory Psalms. You know, the psalmists would, inspired by the Holy Spirit, respond to such horror uh, and injustice uh, with uh, desires that God would avenge the wrong, you know, and even visit the consequences on the enemy's children. Like, Scripture endorses these desires to a point, uh, but I don't think you get a whole book of Scripture, certainly not the Psalms, uh, that ruminate on this stuff unnecessarily. Um, I think. From the rest of the day, at least, uh, as I'm talk, uh, thinking about this, or maybe for the next few days, I'm going to read. Uh, I've, got my, uh, I've got my Bush at War book here. I've got a few other articles about September 11th. Um, taking it down to the level of words uh, may help me wrap my mind and my imagination around this more. Another way to cope with the uh, brutal reality uh, is with creating a fantasy story. Now, you may not just be in a mood to enjoy or explore a story as means to, to understanding reality, but, but you may actually want to write a story like that. Uh, as we discussed a few episodes ago, uh, our podcast and the Lorehaven Project is mainly for fans and there's many resources for writers. So we're going to shine a spotlight on our third sponsor, uh, which is one of those resources, which is the Novel Marketing Podcast. Uh, that's hosted by Thomas Umstadt Jr., a friend of Fantastical Truth. So he's sponsoring this segment. And we're going through a really popular podcast episode he did called The Ten Commandments of Book Marketing. Uh, this podcast is mostly about promoting these stories, which, of course, is a shared interest of Fantastical Truth. And his first commandment there is one of my favorites. Love thy reader as you love thy book. Uh, he says this is the greatest commandment for someone who has made a story and who wants to share it with others. Uh, you must love the other person more than you love the book or as much as you love the book. And I, I appreciate this a lot uh, when I'm listening to novel marketing is uh, this constant repetition of this idea that Thomas does when he's uh, talking about the personhood of the reader. Uh, the reader is not a composite character. Uh, some authors who were taught about marketing uh, were taught to imagine a person, give them a name, give them a pet, give them an amount of kids and, you know, a minivan in the suburbs. And, you know, and you're, you're writing a novel for Aunt Becky. Uh, that was kind of the idea. Uh, Thomas resists that, I think rightfully so, and says, like, no, like, actually, if you're into book marketing, you need to pick a person, a real person and maybe more than one as you're as you're what they call a beta reader in this industry. Uh, that person is reading what you write and hopefully likes it and hopefully doesn't like it so much that they don't give you feedback. But the most important thing is to love that person. And this is not just about being a better author. It's about being a better Christian. Christ loved people. That's why he gave them the truth. Uh, that's why he told them stories. And so I think that anyone who's desiring to create these stories 
is imitating Christ if they're thinking foremost about the good of the receiver of the stories, uh, not just the good of the story itself or the good of the author. You can learn more about the Novel Marketing Podcast. Just look for Novel Marketing on any podcast players. You can also go to authormedia.com and find the show notes for the podcast there. And of course, check the links in our own show notes for episode 79 or at lorehaven.com slash podcast sponsors. From there, let's explore how we engaged with the reality of September 11th through fantasy, through fantastic stories. And that brings us full circle to the central emphasis of fantastical truth. I myself remember, in addition to all of the nonfiction reading that I did and uh, watching the news and all of that, just really finding a renewed passion for fantastical genre stories at the time, whether from books or films. And by seeming coincidence, uh, that era brought uh, kind of a renaissance of specifically fantasy genre stories. September 11th, 2001 was followed just three months and a few days later uh, by the release of The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring. And I have often speculated about how that film would have done uh, in a world where September 11th attacks had not happened. I think it would have been hugely popular, but it got immensely, epically popular. I think in large part because people were subconsciously hungry for a story about good versus evil. Uh, this wasn't about terrorists. This wasn't about a religion in the real world. Uh, this was simply about that fundamental idea of what can good do in response to an evil force, the legions of Mordor under the Dark Lord Sauron, who are trying to take over Middle-earth. I myself resonated so powerfully with that story, one of my favorite films of all time. I, to my shame, had not yet read the books. Gasp! Double gasp! I know. Uh, I was a fantasy greenhorn back then, 20 years ago. Now I'm a pro. But back then, I managed to at least read the first book, book one of the Lord of the Rings series by J.R.R. Tolkien, just before seeing the film. And by the way, Fortunately, I had already started to read book two, The Two Towers. Uh, by the way, it's not a trilogy per se. The books is uh, technically all one book with uh, six portions in it, two portions per book. So I knew what was going to happen at the end of the Fellowship of the Ring film, uh, which uh, viewers know it crosses over into a rather significant character death only uh, at the beginning of book two. My brother had not read book two. So it was a giant spoiler for him. The death of X. <laughs> <laughs> and that film is just amazing. And it, it, um, it gave me not catharsis, but I think processing reality through story helped not just to read the books, but to see a different interpretation uh, of this story on screen. And then of course, a year later, the oddly coincidentally named part two of the Lord of the Rings film series, the two towers released total coincidence that Tolkien's book, written decades earlier, uh, had the second part being called The Two Towers. Had nothing to do, of course, with, uh, with the Twin Towers in New York City or any of that. But I, just, I, I, I can imagine that the name similarity uh, also provided a boost to the popularity of the film series. Like pundits and TV reviewers and all of that uh, would have been at least aware of the coincidence internally, even if they didn't mention it. Of course, the, the Two Towers of the book and the film well, I think the film identifies them as the Tower of Barad-dûr uh, and the, uh, the Tower of Orthanc, uh, where the corrupted wizard Saruman uh, runs his other evil enterprise. Uh, the book, as I recall, is a little more vague about the exact identity of the two towers. So 
the two towers were attacked in reality. However, the two towers are a force of evil uh, in the book and the film. Weird, weird coincidence. I actually read uh, Zach not too long ago as a, um, it was a good writer. I think a guy from the Gospel Coalition was remarking upon the stories that people uh, explored after September 11th and the popular culture they explored. And he, he, he remarked in passing uh, that people were, uh, in his words, paraphrasing, uh, eager for escapist uh, movies. And I think he may have mentioned the Lord of the Rings. And of course, there is a big superhero boost as well afterwards. Um, I would disagree with that a little bit. Um, I think maybe some people wanted to escape and maybe they use movies like this. But if you wanted to escape fully from the good versus evil and the suffering and the darker themes that naturally come to mind and heart after September 11th, then you'd put on the Hallmark Channel. Uh, you would go find the cheesiest G-rated uh, you know, Christian movie that you could Christians, I think, though, largely turned to end times fiction. And I'll talk about that in a moment. Uh, books, uh, along with uh, plenty of political uh, thrillers and nonfiction, uh, talking about uh, are we living in the end times or you know, talking about patriotism or any of that. Uh, but other Christians, myself included, turned to fantasy books, turned to fantasy films, uh, not to escape reality, but as a means of trying to understand it, uh, try to process what's going on. And then lastly, I think I was, uh, was it May 2002? So about nine months after September 11th, uh, Spider-Man with Tobey Maguire, the OG movie Spider-Man, still the best, by the way. I love, I love that series. Yes, right up to Spider-Man 3. But the first one, of course, Spider-Man swings about New York City. New York City is a major presence in the Spider-Man mythos. And of course, in the film, they actually had to edit the film in post-production to remove images of the twin towers which no longer stood i think there maybe was one or two instances like maybe reflected in his uh eye um spider-man's eyepiece that slipped in through the final movie i think maybe the easter egg hunters have found those but the first teaser for the spider-man film actually ends and this too has been memory hold uh, it's just basically a short film directed by sam raimi uh that shows these bad guys robbing a bank and then they're flying in a helicopter and then they get stuck. They just get stuck and the helicopter can't move. And then the camera pulls back and you see that they're stuck in this giant web that has been spun between the twin oh, between towers. Between the towers. Yes. Yeah. It's an excellent, awesome uh, Spider-Man um, short film. Uh, basically a teaser, but there's a short film all on its own. And unfortunately, you can't find it very much anymore because darn it, Spidey had to spin his web between the twin towers, which weren't standing by the time the film released. Uh, by the way, short film is completely independent of the movie series. There's no point in the movie series where those events sync up. It's, it's a great little promo. But the movie itself still kind of addressed September 11th. Uh, you, you probably saw more American flags in the final version than you would have. And then I think it may have been in reshoots where they added a scene where the Green Goblin is torturing Peter Parker and trying to kill people and basically acting like a terrorist. And then there's a bunch of New York City residents who gather on the bridge and they're throwing stuff at the Green Goblin. And then very over the top, somebody says, hey, you mess with Spidey, you mess with New York. And then a the guy says, you mess with one of us, you mess with all of us. And I, I doubt that would have been in there if not for September 11th. But people, I think, would have loved Spider-Man anyway because it was just so groundbreaking for its time. Uh, but I think people loved it even more, similar to The Fellowship of the Ring. Uh, just because you know, not just New York City, you know, not just patriotism and flags and heroes versus villains, and it just it just gave people an outlet maybe to try to feel more deeply uh, some of those ideas. Yeah, so I was one of those people that kind of turned to a lot of uh, political 
thriller fiction. And the first one I heard about, although I actually haven't read the first book, it's Joel Rosenberg's book, The Last Jihad. So this was published shortly after 9-11. He was writing it before 9-11 happened. And oddly enough, the book is about a terrorist cell using an airplane to uh, attack an American city in a kamikaze-style attack. So, you know, earlier we talked about there was this failure of imagination. Well, you know, he, he apparently had imagined this. And a lot of people said, oh, this guy's a prophet or whatever. And he's never claimed that or anything. He's a, he's a great guy to follow, Joel C. Rosenberg. He's a uh, Messianic Jew. He's written a ton of fiction. I, I picked up that series, I think, around book three with the Ezekiel option and then two other books after that, which uh, which dealt with a lot of geopolitical conflict around terrorism and whatnot, but also very much a, uh, there's very much the presence of God, supernatural things happening. The, the book basically is the prequel in some ways to Left Behind because the this is kind of a spoiler, but the, the series ends with the rapture. So it's kind of his way of imagining, you know, what, what could be the events that lead up to the end times. And he started out with this idea of why does America not appear in the end times? And this was something that I remember talking about in my men's group in college, um, right after 9-11. Oh, can I ask real quick, what do you mean appear in the end times? Like factor as a major player in the seeming prophecies of revelation? Right. Yeah. It's, it's all Middle East centric there. It's, it's Babylon and Israel and the Valley of Megiddo and all of this. And like, wait a minute, what about, uh, what about America? Like we, we, we like this sort of thing. Sh- shouldn't we yeah. be, uh, shouldn't we be a member of the A-list cast here? Yeah. And maybe it's just a non sequitur. Like you said, it's, it's just, Hey, that we're just going to kind of zero in on this part of the world. It's just interesting though, when you look at how the Roman Empire and the Persian Empire, the Babylonian Empire were very much covered all through scripture because uh, scriptural events were happening when those empires were uh, in ascension. But uh, you, you just don't see any sort of global power, a, a world superpower in Revelation unless you really look hard. So a question a lot of people were asking, including in my men's group in college, is you know, is 9-11 the beginning of the end of America and therefore leading into the end times when America is just not going to be a superpower and, Cheerful. you know, yeah, exactly. It's a little, little sobering question. It's a bit know. humbling though, you know, because regardless yeah. of one's view of the end times, it's very clearly centered on the conflict between God's people, whether that's Israel, whether that's the church, whether it's both uh, versus a hostile power. A, a an in-between entity like America just doesn't seem to figure very powerfully in the prophetic imagination. You know, America uh, had Judeo-Christian principles at its founding. They were present, uh, but I, I wouldn't go so far as to call it a Christian nation. Uh, it's certainly not the new Israel, as much as some American leaders may appropriate some language about Israel or even the church to describe America, up to and including the city on a hill metaphor. Um, look, I, I love this country. I think it may even survive into the new heavens and new earth. Uh, but I guess this is another late grab from the concession stand. Uh, America does not equal Israel or, or the church. Uh, it is, it is a third party, uh, between the major players in the end times. And then you know, it's very difficult then to, to ask, well, what happens to my house and what happens to my country, uh, when all these, uh, prophecies are focused on an entirely different direction. Yeah, I I don't think this question necessarily comes from an American centric view of the world. No, um, it, it's, it's just natural. more that 
Um, yeah, I, I don't think anyone's asking that would call America like a Christian nation or a second Israel or anything like that. It's just simply that certain regions and countries and cities are named in Revelation. And as of right now, America, you know, has the largest military in the world and is involved in a lot of different conflicts. So why don't you see them involved in this conflict is, is more the thinking. And so does something happen to America or is it just anyway? So this series is kind of answering that question through you know, a series of unfortunate events, I'll just say. Again, it was very humbling to read that and just realize, hey, you know, God's plan is much bigger than what goes on here. Those books, again, written from a Christian perspective about uh, these kind of geopolitical struggles, it really helped me open my imagination to how God might be shaking things up in ways that we may not want, but uh, but he's in control. Uh, but a movie that came out a couple years later spoke to me kind of in a deeper level. It was Cloverfield by J.J. Abrams. And this was sort of a sleeper hit. It's a, it's a found footage style film where um, a guy is uh, going around New York City with a, like, like a video camera uh, documenting an alien invasion. And, and it's sort of like a Godzilla-type monster something. And, uh, you know, you were mentioning earlier how back in this time, people didn't have smartphones and to record things on all the time. And yeah, that was true in this movie as well. It very much has the feel of how 9-11 was to New York at that time and to everyone else of just like, oh my goodness, like we're being attacked, invaded, what is going to happen? And um, on that documentary I mentioned earlier, Inside 9-11, there's this one quote that's always stood out to me where a guy says, if you went in a time machine back to uh, September 12th and told everyone there will be no more kamikaze plane attacks on any buildings, no one would believe you. Yeah, Like every single person thought they're going to wake up to another one. That was the mood for so long. And I remember at that time, Stephen, every restaurant I went to started putting televisions up so that we could watch for when the next one happens because we were so caught off guard. We're like, we don't want to, you know, miss the next one or whatever. And so Cloverfield very much captures that sense of like, I don't know what's going to happen next. Uh, so I better just keep filming. And cause it's like, why does this guy film this disaster? And it's like, it's kind of answered in that. Like, I, I don't want to be caught off guard. This movie involves falling buildings, <laughs> you know, just total destruction of this, of New York city. And so, for a lot of people, that may not be a good film to watch because it it just hits too close to home. For me, you know, I, I take a certain, <laughs> maybe I'm weird, but I take a certain amount of relief in disaster films because oh, same. usually th they come with some kind of uh, catharsis at the end, like some kind of defeat of the monster or the big bad, you know, villain or some kind of rebuilding or some kind of resolution to it all. And again, that's what everyone wanted after 9-11. They wanted these people to be stopped and brought to justice. Uh, they wanted to see safety again. They wanted to see healing again. And so, you know, you, you get a little bit of that in these disaster movies. I, I mentioned in our last podcast, the more recent movie, San Andreas, which is about the West Coast you know, getting a 9.5 earthquake and all kinds of buildings falling down. And, you know, and that's a very... Um, it is a fantastical thing. Like you said, like to think of a skyscraper falling over, that is not something that we normally think could ever happen. And so, 
these movies about these disasters can be a way to sort of revisit that that shock and that emotion and and sort of try to make sense of it exactly and the those uh those types of movies continued like i i I keep thinking for some reason about just the next few years after september 11th but the legacy continues to this day two decades later uh in uh, 2005 you had batman begins which uh which dealt a little bit with ideas about terrorism and a a city under attack and then even more so in The Dark Knight in uh, Dark 2008 Knight, yeah. was, was uh, also about uh, you know, an anarchist, the Joker. So it's Some a little bit just different. just want to watch the world burn. Yeah. yeah. And, and in the end, though, it's uh, basically a straight up allegory, as close to a straight up allegory as you'll get from Christopher Nolan, uh, about the necessity, but also uh, the great hazard of a security apparatus or a, um, a surveillance apparatus. Bruce Wayne, by the end, you know, spoilers here if you haven't seen it, but he's literally got cameras all over Gotham City, uh, hijacking all the cell phone technology to turn every cell phone into a surveillance device to try to find the Joker. Uh, and then speaking of catharsis, Zach, you know, by the end, they have shut it down. Like they've kind of made their point that these uh, surveillance methods may be necessary for a time, but a good hero will know when to stop. Um, I, I don't think even good heroes now know when to stop. And that's another podcast about the level of surveillance uh, that we've gotten into in the wake of September 11th and how that can be appropriated by uh, evildoers in the name of safety. Uh, that's, that's another issue. But stories help us work through those issues. Uh, and then even um, about, let's see, I guess, yeah, Man of Steel was in 2013, right? So this is 12 years later. Uh, the uh, the first of the the DC uh, franchise there. Everybody knows I'm a big fan of those. The ending of that film is uh, Kryptonian terrorists. In a word, uh, the word not one you, they use, but one that I would use, attacking Metropolis, and they are knocking over buildings. And then once Superman has defeated the Black Zero ship and sent it into the Phantom Zone, General Zod, one of your favorites, is left over. Mm-hmm. And they have a super battle flying and punching in the skies and buildings are falling and they're firing their laser vision through uh, the buildings, just cutting through them, just like a plane would cut through the walls of the World Trade Center towers. And then it picks up in, uh, in Batman v Superman, where the camera goes to the ground. Bruce Wayne drives into Metropolis, where he has a, an office in, uh, in a tower or the whole tower. I forget which. Uh, but then. Uh, the tower collapses uh, as a result of the Superman versus Zod battle. And the camera takes you into the tower where a man, uh, a friend of Bruce Wayne's is realizing that he's going to die and he starts to pray. He just starts to pray the Lord's prayer and then the building collapses and Bruce Wayne played masterfully by Ben Affleck is screaming uh, in his cell phone. Uh, This guy is his friend. And then he just charges into the ash cloud. It is an overt homage to September 11th, except Bruce Wayne, not Batman is running into the cloud of ash to save victims. Oh, yeah. And then he's, that was amazing. He, it's amazing. Like I, it's visceral too. I mean, uh, 2016, this is 15 years afterwards and I'm sitting there going, I guess, I guess it's been a decade and a half. I guess it's long enough afterwards to start going back over these ideas specifically, uh, even in a superhero movie and then start asking these questions. I mean, the, the events are a little different. As far as I know, there's no September 11 equivalent that takes place in this DC world apart from the Metropolis event. That is its September 11 mm-hmm. uh, in, yeah. this, in this fantastical version of reality. Uh, and yet you see the difficulties faced by heroes afterwards. You know, Bruce Wayne is there to help victims and he finds a little girl whose mother was lost in the tower 
Uh, and, and then he, he looks up and you see he is beginning to feel vengeance against Superman, this, uh, this godlike figure who somehow couldn't prevent this from happening. And his vengeance drives him through the rest of the movie. So it's super complex. There's so many avenues to explore how people respond to something like this. And yet I altogether found that film absolutely cathartic. Uh, maybe one of the last truly September 11th cathartic stories that I appreciated. And to this day, I will defend the film for that reason, is that it explores the difficulties of a hero in an event like that, where there's a truly no-win scenario, that's Superman's struggle. And then the difficulties of a hero who then falls into darkness, you know, not just the surveillance temptations of uh, Christian Bale's Batman and the Dark Knight trilogy, uh, but feelings of vengeance against the godlike hero who couldn't stop it from happening. What dark path does that lead him down to? And you can go down a dark path or even fall into kind of a counterterrorism terrorism yourself in response to something like this. That is not the option for a Christian. It's not the option for a good superhero or, or an option for a real life hero. Uh, Christians can debate how we respond to these things, but we must overcome evil with good. I do not envy the position of a Christian soldier or political leader or spy for that matter. There are so many uh, complex decisions people have to make and uh, we'll answer for those. But also I think the gospel grace of Jesus Christ will cover for any of the wrong responses that we've had uh, to terrorism. Wars or rumors of wars are expected. Jesus told us to expect them. Uh, he said that those were signs of the end and those have been going on for 2,000-ish years since he gave that warning. Uh, we just saw another more up-to-date example of those uh, 20 years ago, and we're just going to keep on seeing those probably right up until the day when Jesus Christ finally returns to earth and puts a stop to all that sort of thing. You know, just today, Stephen, I saw this picture of a firefighter who's fire truck was stuck in one of the tunnels in New York city. Wow. And so he just jumped out and ran all the way to the world trade center to try to get people out in full gear running in full gear. That stuff's and, heavy. <laughs> yeah. And he, he perished inside the tower. His body was never found. Oh. I'll see if I can find this story. Wow. I just, it was something really brief. I ran across this morning and you know, the, the phrase it's often used with nine 11 is never forget. And uh, a lot of people interpret that different ways, and I interpret that as never forget the pe the heroes, the the real life right. heroes that could have run away or could have just stayed in place, but ran into the building to save others that they put their life on the line, and um, you know, and that that act of real heroism, like you said, it was totally mirrored in the scene of Bruce Wayne running towards the burning building that's collapsing without his Batman gear on, he's just in his shirt and tie, just as vulnerable as everyone else, but he wanted to get his friend out. And it's just that expression of greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. And that's what I think we should never forget is that we should never forget people that sacrifice that. But also, you know, that is a reflection of Jesus love for us that he laid down his life. People didn't take it from him. He gave it up. And that, that I think is, is all, should always point us back to the cross. Amen. Also, never forget the evil. This is real evil. It wasn't just a natural disaster. If we lived in a world with nothing but natural disasters, it would still point us to the reality of human sin and what that has done to creation. God has sent a curse to creation way back in Genesis 3. It is still in effect. However, many thousands of years later or millions, whatever you believe in, uh, it's still going on. Uh, and yet it's not just natural disasters that are a response to sin, but it is evil people believing evil things and making evil choices, 
bringing about evil consequences. And yet we must not get trapped in thinking about the evil and believing that the evil is the only real thing. That's not true. And the best fantastic stories and nonfiction alike reminds us that we do have heroes. God has put his common grace in the world. There are good government leaders who will want to prevent this kind of thing from happening. Disagree with their methods if you like, but nobody of, of goodwill in government wants to see another terrorist attack. Uh, they're going to take drastic measures to try to stop it, and that can be a common grace. Romans 13 talks in glowing terms about government being an agent of God's will. The civil magistrate does not bear the sword in vain, which is probably also an implicit defense of some kind of warfare, some kind of lethal response to this kind of evil. Government is a good from God, and these heroes are good from God. Uh, in real life, the firefighters, the police, the soldiers, all of those true heroes, uh, which one way or another reflect Jesus Christ. Uh, and then the third level is that heroes show up in our stories. You know, Bruce Wayne is not real. Bruce Wayne did not run into the ash cloud. That was an actor, Ben Affleck, doing a fabulous job, but he's just an actor. But the symbol reflects the reality. There were people who rushed into that cloud or rushed up at the burning tower uh, and never came back and probably knew they weren't coming back. Probably wondered what the heck they were doing all along. I would like to think that whether or not they believed in Jesus Christ, there is some kind of some kind of benefit there. I, I don't know how that works out. I'm not a universalist. I'm not an inclusivist. Uh, but somebody who imitates Jesus like that, I, my imagination, I'd really like to think that God works something out, like even in the microseconds before death, would he bring somebody to repentance because they have imitated Jesus so well? Could it be an emeth type situation, like from the last battle, where there's even a noble heathen who is uh, believing in a false religion uh, virtue, for virtuous reasons, you know, for common grace reasons? Could God save, like Zach, you mentioned earlier, the Apostle Paul was arguably a terrorist. Could God save even one of the hijackers uh, in the last moments before the plane hits? And maybe they dimly remember something they heard while they were students in America about Jesus Christ. And maybe the truly dedicated jihadist is sitting there at the control yoke and he's got it locked in or whatever. But could any of them have repented? You never know. Uh, there's so many stories of heroes and goodness that came out after September 11th that took a little bit longer because we didn't have the smartphones. But I would love to think that when Christ returns and makes all things new, uh, we'll be hearing those stories of heroes and last minute conversions and everything somehow uh, Christ will work it for good. You don't want to dump that verse, Romans 8:28, on someone who's grieving uh, either on the day or 20 years later. But nevertheless, it is true that God works all things together for good, including September 11th. Well, if you would like to share your story about 9-11 with us, uh, particularly if you've read a book, watched a movie, seen a TV show that kind of puts something in perspective for you, um, whether it's a, a, a real life tale or a fantastical tale, something that helped you process how 9-11 has affected you, affected our country, what's, what's something that's given you a new perspective on this, send us a message to podcast at lorehaven.com or tag us on social media. You can find us by searching Instagram or Twitter or Facebook. Just search for Lorehaven. We should be the top result that shows up. You can also go to the show notes for this episode, episode 79, and find a feedback form there, lorehaven.com slash podcast. Next on Fantastical Truth. Well, we talked a little about end time speculations in this episode, uh, not focusing on that exclusively. Next week, however, Lord willing, we will go all in and we will ask the question, what if you were hunting in the woods and found a Louisiana girl 
who had just been dropped off by a UFO. Then you tried to help her out while reconnecting with your past, and you dropped into that crazy world of conspiracies and possible preparation for the end times. Will Satan, or perhaps his human agents, not just terrorists, use extraterrestrial myths to prepare us for a tribulation? We will be joined by Darby Kern, a friend of mine who's a writer and producer of the Jake Moeller Adventures Unidentified and many other audio dramas. He will enter fantastical truth to explore this challenging world from a biblical worldview. Meanwhile, as you remember September 11th or listen to those who do remember it, try not to get lost in the darkness. Let's not look away from these images and these memories of real evil, real choices that led to real suffering. But let's appreciate that backdrop of our groaning world only for the reasons that it points us to a savior. Jesus Christ will be the ultimate hero. He will not overreach at the governmental level. Uh, He will not leave any plot thread unresolved. We can trust him to come back and make all things right and work everything out for the good of those who love him as we continue to seek and find Jesus's fantastical truth.